Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, where is this? Hey there, welcome to the program. This is The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles, California. It's nice to be with you. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you're doing all right wherever you happen to be. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow The Other People Podcast on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. So today my guest is Mona Awad. She has a new novel out called Rouge. So I think that's really what it is. I just think the, the fantastic and our fantasies, because fairy tales, I mean, in a lot of ways, they're just wish fulfillments, right? They're wish fulfillments. And I think our wishes and desires lay us bare more than we like to think. Like they reveal the reality of our hearts, our anxieties and our desires in such poignant ways our fantasies do. And so I really like playing with that line in my books. Okay, that was Mona Awad. Her new novel is called Rouge. It is available from Simon & Schuster. Rouge is an eerie, hypnotic, richly imagined, gothic fairy tale. I think that's a fair way to describe it. It's about a young woman who is mourning the loss of her estranged mother. So it's a novel about grief. It is a mother-daughter story. It is a story about the dark side of a culture, our culture, that is obsessed with youth and beauty. Rouge is also a novel that finds its inspiration in interesting and often disparate places in stories like Snow White and movies like Eyes Wide Shut. This is a book that is laced with black humor. It is a book about surfaces and what lies beneath. My conversation with Mona Awad is coming up in just a couple of minutes. A quick reminder before we get going that I do a weekly email newsletter. I would love it if you would subscribe. You can do so at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. The newsletter is simple. I let you know about the latest episodes of the show. I also share some links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So if you want to get my newsletter, go sign up at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. If you love this program, if you listen regularly, if you get something from it, or if you're just a person who loves literary culture, join the Other People Patreon community and help keep this show going into the future. You can also get merchandise and a book club subscription, all sorts of fun stuff over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Okay, so my guest once again is Mona Awad. 
She is the author of several books, including the novels All's Well and Bunny, as well as a short story collection called 13 Ways of Looking at a Fat Girl. Bunny was a finalist for a Goodreads Choice Award and the New England Book Award. It was named a Best Book of 2019 by Time Magazine, Vogue, and the New York Public Library. It is currently being adapted for film by Jenny Connor and New Regency Productions. So that's exciting. Mona Awad is a teacher of fiction in the creative writing program at Syracuse University, and I'm very excited to have her here on the Other People podcast. So let's get to it. This is my conversation with Mona Awad, and her new novel, One More Time, is called Rouge. And I was working on, on Rouge and, you know, getting inspired you know, it got really Byzantine and crazy. I mean, I tried everything. You know, I tried mists, I tried different acids, I tried masks, um, I tried beauty bombs, I tried snail mucin, which is a thing. You know, you put snail mucin on your face and it does all kinds of glowy, wonderful things. Wait, what is snail mucin? It's like the little slime it's, from snails? Yeah, it's, it's, it's extract from, from snails. It doesn't hurt the snail, it's just collected. And, and, and put on the face. And there is like, there's a fairy tale quality to that, right? I, I like the more magic-y kind of ingredients as opposed to the more science-driven ingredients. Those seem kind of boring to me, but usually a, a skincare product sort of likes to present itself as an unholy mix of both. Like there's some science stuff here, some retinol for you, some vitamin C, you know, some niacinamide. And then here also is some like some green tea and some willow bark and some snail aloe. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's like it's a botanical extracts, you know, which can be good or bad for you. But I, I kind of went full circle. And by the end of the writing process, I was back down to like two or three products, a cleanser, a moisturizer and a sunscreen. You know. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sort of there. Like my dermatologist, who I have to see like twice a year because I have like pre-skin cancer. I mean, I'm a mess. Right. And he's like, you got to wear sunscreen. And yeah. so I do religiously. But like I put this sunscreen on my face and then I'll go exercise and I will like sweat. And like if it gets in my eyes, it's like I've been pepper sprayed. Right. And I'm like, this shit cannot be good for me. If it's doing this to my eyes, like what is it doing to my skin? I get that it's like blocking UV rays. Right. It seems like a necessary evil, but I'm mistrustful of anything that burns my eyes that badly. Or you said you were using acids. I'm like, yeah, I'm a little bit suspect of anything that's going to cause like a burning. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know. I know. I mean, there's. I think that there's a lot of, you know, speculation about to what degree these things actually work and, and how much do we really need them and how much do they help versus harm us? I mean, but, um, but I did, I did enjoy those acids. They were fun. I have to say, um, did they, also, did they yield, did they yield good results? Like, did you see? Yeah, I think they do impart a glow, you know, cause they exfoliate your, your dead skin. They get rid of the dead skin. So, so, I mean, but, but then if you do it too much, um, you can get in a really terrible loop and, and you can, your skin can get really irritated and, and then that's it. You've kind of un, undone whatever good you were doing. Um, so you have to be really careful with it. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's like, a, it's, it is a dangerous rabbit hole, but it was fun. I do have to say experimenting. It was like being a child again and like playing with potions, you know, what can this do? What can this do? How can this, you know? change me and you know and the change is so minor like it's just like is there going to be a little glow or or not i don't know and it's um, also about the psychological impact this is the this is the the hook of these products is that like it does give some little hit of like dopamine or psychological relief or you feel yeah. a little bit better that's enough yeah. to keep you going i feel like oftentimes i think so too and i think that you know um when i started writing the book you know, it was during the pandemic at the start of it, actually. And I, I was I think I was partly so into the videos because it was a really weird time. And I think, you know, we were all seeking a kind of consolation where we could find it, you know. And so, yeah, I think and I was more isolated. We all were. 
and maybe as a result more vulnerable. And so things like skincare and, and rituals feels like you're taking back some kind of little bit of control or, you know, you're doing something good for yourself. Right. Um, so, I mean, it's, you know, I really do think there, there, are, there, are, there are restorative and, and healing things about it, like lovely things. But I also think there's this, there's this other element to it that maybe is a little bit more nefarious. And, you know, the book is really all about how sometimes when we are fixated on the surface too much, it's at the expense of the depths, you know, um, and that's a problem, right? Hmm. So. Well, let's talk about this book and the setup yeah. so that listeners who have not yet had a chance to read can be in the loop. Your protagonist is a, a young woman named Mirabelle Noor, mm-hmm. right? And she is in La Jolla, California, which is a Tony suburb north of San Diego, right? (laughs) It's beautiful. Yeah, it's very beautiful. It's where I wrote it. Uh, Yeah, and we're going to talk about that. But this is where she has come because her mother has died under mysterious circumstances. Right. And the gist is that she gets involved in kind of beauty cult. Mm Mm-hmm. And her mother, and there's a mystery around, like, the association that her mother may have had with it and what it all entailed right. and what it meant to her right. demise. Right. So I won't spoil anything, but that's kind of the setup. And right. one of the things I want to talk to you right away, because I think that this applies not only to Rouge, but to your entire body of work. This book really made me feel it. And I kept thinking to myself, like, wow, like, Mona has, like, real creative confidence (laughs) because like a willingness to pursue your whims as a writer on the page and to kind of follow your imagination wherever it takes you freedom is maybe another Mm -hmm. word i would use a creative freedom because as i was reading i was like no she can't be going there and then it's like oh my god she's really like not only going there she's like doubling and tripling down (laughs) on certain storylines or certain fairy tale like qualities and so i admire that i think i might have more reticence creatively than i wish that i did and so whenever somebody feels unbound it's like oh that's really cool and it makes the work feel alive and interesting in ways that are not maybe bound to reality necessarily or not as constricted or something so do you, where does that come from? I mean, do you agree with me <laughs> that you try to kind of em, employ that in your work? And if so, where do you feel like that comes from? Yeah, um, I think I do. And I think it comes from maybe my experience writing Bunny because that was really in the dark and like a huge leap from my first book, which was a much more realist telling of, 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 a, of a woman's experience. And that was 13 ways to look at a fat girl. That's right, yeah. And, uh, and so with Bunny, because I was moving into new spheres, um, you know, following this person's consciousness, who's a creative writer, into the unreal, because that's how she's really experiencing the world, you know? Um, her imagination is a huge part of her perspective, you know, on reality. So I had to kind of take a bit of a leap and it was really scary, but it felt really good. And at first the responses that I got were kind of not great. Like they were a little like, what are you doing? You know? And I was like, oh shit, like nobody's going to want to publish this book. (laughs) Responses from whom? Just from friends who were reading? No, industry responses. And, And so I was just like, well, you know, I, I made this may, maybe 13 ways is going to be my last book. And this one's just going to be in a drawer. And at first that made me really sad. Like I felt really stupid and sad and like, what are you doing? Like, you're just writing this crazy book about boys who like boys who are, you know, conjured from bunnies and like, you know, what, what is this? And like, but then I just really missed it. And I, I, I wanted to find out what happened, you know, cause I wasn't finished. 
Okay, let me let me stop you real quick. So just yeah. so that we're clear on what was happening, like you had written partial. Yeah, I'd written. You had a partial manuscript that you yeah. then what shared with it your your editor who edited thirteen ways. No, I didn't share it with her. I I shared it with um with my first agent. Uh. Yeah, and uh, and I just you know didn't get like I didn't get the the best. I mean, she's lovely and everything is fine and is totally amicable and you know there's no 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 issue at all. She was a great agent, but. I, I really did feel from her response that, oh, you know, this is just not going to be, it's not going to be a thing. And then I just wanted to continue writing it myself. And, and I actually wrote it thinking it would never see the light of day. And I was just going to take delight in it on my own. <laughs> and so, which was very freeing and really wonderful and created such an intense bond with the story that I, I realized what I loved the most about being creative is that private interchange between yourself and the story. That, that experience is, for me, is why I do it. And then when I shared it um, with friends, I mean, they, you know, I got really great responses. And then I thought, well, I am going to, you know, I am going to try <laughs> to like put this out there. But it was really like a moment in the dark of, of deep fear and thinking, this is it. But even if this is it, I'm still going to write it. And, and so now I, I write from that place always because I found in it real agency and freedom and, and, uh, and a kind of intimacy with the story that I, I'd never experienced before. So when it comes to actual practice, yeah, I know, I know from reading up a little bit that you tend to write best early in the morning, first yes. thing. Yes. You get to your keyboard the only way to really get a book done is to do it pretty consistently. Yes. So every day or close to it, you're getting some words on the page. Yes. All of that stuff makes sense to me. But when it comes to actual practice, like I guess it's just an internal feeling of freedom, like it's an attitude. Is there, are, are there tangible things you can detect in the way that you approach the work post Bunny yes. that were not in effect when you were writing your debut? Yes, I, I am far less likely to uh, fret over sentences the way that I fretted over sentences in 13 ways. I am far more likely to give myself permission to be imperfect as long as I feel like the voice is alive. If the voice is alive, that's what I, that's what I trust and follow and commit to completely. And if uh, the sentences aren't perfect, I, that's okay. As long as I feel like I've got the voice right and I believe in the voice. So that's what I pay attention to. And I try to leave my anxiety about it being perfect aside. Um, and I'm more and more comfortable doing that the more I work, even though it's very hard, like the anxiety is very real and I face it every day. Um, and it's telling me like, you know, this isn't good, you know, <laughs> whatever, like I still just keep. Go, go put some acid on your face, go yeah, get yourself exactly. a peel. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Like I just, you just have to put it, you have to put that desire to be perfect, um, or I do, I have to put it aside and I am getting better and better at doing that, yeah. We should say that Bunny was your breakout book. Yes, <laughs> yes. It connected really deeply with a lot of readers. It found a lot of readers. It was a bestseller. It was optioned by Bad Robot, the J.J. Abrams company. What is the status of that, by the way? I feel like these things are always in development forever. <laughs> did it happen? I'm, I'm, oh, did yeah. I miss it? No, it, 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 well, no, it, it didn't get made, um, but it just, it just got optioned. Um, so, yeah, we're just kind of at the opening stages of, of development. And then, of course, the strike happened, so... We'll just wait right. and see what, what happens on the other side. But it's, it's a really exciting partnership. I mean, I really, really love the producers who are, who are working on it. That's awesome. And yeah. it's a lesson. It's a lesson for writers out there who might be working on something and experiencing resistance either in the marketplace or from a mentor or a colleague or a, someone in the industry that if you really deeply believe in something, and I think what you said earlier is maybe the crucial point, if you would finish it anyway, just for your own delight yeah. <laughs> and interest, yeah, that's a really good sign because finishing it anyway is no small task. Writing a novel is a big lift. That's a lot of labor. Yeah, it is. So if you are willing to undertake that labor just because it means that much to you and is that 
uh, interesting to you. I feel like there's a lesson in that. That's what you did with, with Bunny and that's what you're trying to replicate going forward. Yeah, yeah, finding that space. Because I, I know now that if I trust myself, um, trust the story rather, um, I mean, I know I'm writing the story, but you know what I mean. When you're writing, it really does feel like the story also has its own, its own um, machinery, its own agenda, its own life, right? So following it um, and trusting it, even even if it fails a bit, just that is the joy of it. That's 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 the whole point in doing it. Is that experience of following is so wonderful. Well, and you said that you don't tend to be as precious about sentences as you yeah. are drafting. Yeah. So I'm wondering, like, on the back end, does this mean, like, you're having a different experience revising than you previously did? Is it one of these things where you're kind of giving yourself more permission to write a messier first draft just to get the story on the page and to indulge the whims of your imagination and to trust in that creative, you know, creative process? And then you're fixing it up later more yeah. than you were, say, with your debut. Maybe your debut was more arduous and constricted, but yet required less on the back end. Oh God, no, my debut was just, I mean, I rewrote some of those stories about a million times. I mean, oh my gosh, <laughs> um, so funny. I mean, it's just thinking about how, how, how many iterations like that book went through um, to, to, to its published form. It's just, it's crazy. I mean, it started off as a poem, you know, and then 13 years later, it's a novel um more than 13 years later but um but with with the novels now what i tend to do is i will kind of commit myself to writing that first draft with with a kind of freedom and permission As, again the only caveat to that is i have to believe in that voice so if i'm stuck and i'm not quite believing the voice and the voice feels a little wooden and not alive then i'll step away for a bit until i feel like i, ha I find my way in um and then when I go back and I, I do revise, I, I add layers, I fine tune the voice, <clears throat> I, I deal with any kind of plot issues that, that are still kind of lingering. And that takes time, like that will take, like Rouge, for example, I wrote most of it in five weeks, um, the first draft of it. And then- um, and I should I, say that's, re that's really fast. I know, I know, but as a teacher, uh, who who teaches during you know during the fall and spring semester? You, you, in order to get work done, sometimes you just really have to you know give yourself over during your breaks, right? Um, so I did that, and then I spent quite a long time, you know, sitting with each chapter and and adding the layers and you know um, making sure that the plot worked and making sure that the voices felt right to me, that the dialogue ran true, like rang true and that the surreal elements were grounded enough in reality, like all of those things. Um, because for me, the surreal still has to have like a real, um, it needs to, it, something real needs to be at stake even in the surreal moments in the book. Um, so making sure that all of that is working takes time. So it actually, Rouge did take two years to write ultimately. Yeah. But it's easier, maybe. It's that's always easier to work with something that's on the page, right? It's the it's getting that draft down. That's a workable draft. Yes. It's the hardest part. Once you have that, then you at least got something to mold. Yes. Yes. Exactly. And I I do love that time with it. I love kind of sitting with something that I have and just kind of working with it, even if it frustrates me and sometimes I don't know what I'm doing. It's just it's still it's really lovely to have the draft, you know. Yeah, the worst is when you've got nothing. <laughs> the worst is when you have nothing. <laughs> definitely, definitely. The worst is when you have nothing. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty, 
And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So something that you said earlier, I think you, you, you just said it. We didn't really get into it, but I want to talk about it because I learned this about you after I finished reading Rouge and it illuminated the work. I guess I should have deduced it, but it's this term fairy tale. Yeah. There is a fairy tale like quality to this book. Mm-hmm. And you said the word surreal. There's surreality, but it's rooted in reality. Yes. And then as I dug around deeper uh, in prep, I learned that you actually, I believe in graduate school, did you get your PhD studying fairy tales or something like that? It was like fear in fairy tales. You grew up reading the Brothers Grimm. Yes. Like I love learning this stuff <laughs> about a writer because it's like, oh, it all kind of clicked into place. I'm like, these are her deep concerns. Yeah. And that's why this, this book is so infused with that feeling. So can you just talk a little bit about that education and that love of fairy tales and how you have found ways to use it in your work? Yeah, of course. Um, I did love them as, as a child. Um, and I loved fairy tale adjacent um, novels too, like the Chronicles of Narnia and Alice in Wonderland and the Wizard of Oz. And they all felt like, even though they were inhabiting these other worlds, still felt like there was something very um, real at stake for the for, for, for the characters in those worlds, you know? Um, I mean, Wizard of Oz, unbelievably so, right? I mean, she just wants to find her way home. Um, and I, I just think it's such a gorgeous story and, and definitely did inform Rouge a little bit with the red shoes. Um, and then, you know, I started studying fairy tales later. Um, I returned to them as an adult. I, I studied them at the University of Edinburgh for a year and I wrote a dissertation on fear in the fairy tale. And, uh, and it was really fun to write that and to read them as uh, more critically. Um, but I really, it just got me excited to work with them creatively because I really think fairy tales, even though they have these magical elements, they are dealing with real life concerns and crises, um, especially for young people, like for, for children. And, and also parental anxieties, um, you know, anxieties between siblings, a lot of, a lot of things that you experience that on, on such a like elemental level, they're so fundamental to just being alive and being, being human. Um, fairy tales deal with in, in a fantastic way, you know? And so Snow White was, was really the fairy tale that I explored in Rouge. Um, and I, I was always interested in it because I've always found that relationship between the queen and the mirror so fascinating and so mysterious. Her vulnerability and just wondering whether or not the mirror is really an entity that is feeding this dark impulse inside of her or if she's just engaging with her own reflection you know you don't really know and i wanted to explore that in this book i wanted to make the mirror more of a more instrumental in pitting the mother against the daughter than we usually find in the in the fairy tale because i just love that mirror so much such a mysterious figure. <laughs> Mir- mirrors are strange. They are strange. Yeah. They are strange. And I, like, I was thinking about this just the other day. I was like, how do you make a mirror? Yeah. Like, how, did any- how did anyone discover how to make a mirror? Yeah. Like, what is it? It's sand? Like, what is it? Sand. It's so strange. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, uh, th- that was, you know, the ocean that plays such a huge role in the book is kind of the first mirror, right? The water reflecting the light. And it's so like pretty on the surface, but then there are these unimaginable depths beneath it. I think the mirror is equally mysterious, you know? Um, and the fact that when we see ourselves only in reverse, it's such a strange, the mirrors are so strange. Um, it was a it's the only, only time we, it's the only time we ever see our own eyes. Yeah, that's, that's true. That's true. Yeah. So, um, so I think that's really what it is. I just think the, the fantastic and our fantasies, because fairy tales, I mean, in a lot of ways, they're just wish fulfillments, right? They're wish fulfillments. And I think our wishes and desires lay us bare more than we like to think. Like they reveal the reality of our hearts 
our anxieties and our desires in such poignant ways our fantasies do. And so I, I really like playing with that line in my books. Um, well, I, yeah, I mean, I feel, I feel like you've said that your books tend to have a careful what you wish for vibe. Yes. Yeah, they do. They do. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that's very true of fairy tales. And there are lots of insidious reasons why fairy tales kind of have that message, careful what you wish for. Because ultimately, I mean, you know, it's about staying in your place, right? And only some of us are anointed and chosen to, to move elsewhere, to move on, to transform, to, to have wealth and have the person of your dreams, you know, and, and all of that stuff, to become free and powerful. But always careful what you wish for is, is still, like, it's a good thing to remember that what you long for might, ne- not, not, might not necessarily be what you need or what you really, really want. And, you know, you won't know that because it just exists as a dream, right? It occurs to me that we rarely question our deep longings in that way. The things yeah. we really obsessively wish yeah. for and think we need. Yes. There's a feeling of certainty that goes along with that most of the time, it seems like. If yeah. it's this deeply rooted within me, if I'm this fixated on it, and I can envision it so clearly and you know all the ways that it's going to fix me or make my life better or whatever it is, that's very seductive. It's easy to trust that. And yet we can be wrong (laughs) we can be wrong and yeah and i mean having the thing i don't know that's its own curious like place to occupy right i mean we're in positions of longing for so long what is it like to actually have the the longing fulfilled you know is is it really what you think it will be the fairy tales definitely explore that and and show the shadow side of that that you may not have anticipated I feel like sometimes the most unhappy people in the world are the people who get this surface level stuff thinking it's going to make them happy. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't. And when they have it and that longing is fulfilled and then they're still miserable, that's the real misery. (laughs) Yes. And I mean, going back to YouTube, you know, I think that there's something there in that, you know, in the the pursuit of great skin, the, the pursuit of beauty, the pursuit of whatever it is surface level things yeah i mean it's because there's something else underneath that pursuit i mean ultimately i think and i mean the book is really kind of exploring this it's about anxiety of, of about death it's about the fear of losing yourself really when we're looking in the mirror and we feel anxious that's what we're feeling i mean we may use skincare to attend to it but what it is is just the knowledge that we are all mortal and it's going we're in it, and and it, we inevitably are going to lose ourselves, and um, and that's quite deep. But the pursuit of skincare seems to be quite a surface thing. But I think that one informs the other, no question, no question. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, I think anything related to health, wellness, like this into this entire space, the health and wellness space, beauty space, yeah. it is all about helping you to fend off mortality or to create the illusion that you can yes and to distract you from it or whatever it is but deep down inside of it's just fear of death yes i do think that's what it is and i couldn't stop when i was watching those videos there was a point at which i couldn't stop thinking about that like oh this is what this is all really about (laughs) you know this is the thing that is unspoken that we're really trying to put a little bomb on literally a bomb on this fear of the abyss, this fear that we are going to lose ourselves. Here's a bomb for that. <laughs> here's a glow. Here's some, here's, here's some snail mucin. Yes, exactly. By the way, I'm going to Google after we get off this uh, call. I'm going to, I want to see how the mucin is extracted from the snails. Yes. Is no, there like, I'm, I'm, I'm picturing like a person like milking a snail or something. But <laughs> I think there's a net involved. I, I, okay. I do think there's a net. And I, I know that, I mean, who knows what's true? But according to the YouTubers, the snails are not harmed. So, okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm a little bit doubtful, but we'll find yeah. out. <laughs> so, okay. So fairy tales we've covered as like a founding principle of this work and your work generally. 
it's interesting to me. I think about that debut of yours, which you said was really arduous to write and was mm-hmm. more bound to reality. You know, it was a yes. little bit more constricted in its creative process. And yet, you know, you, you were self-aware enough to go get a advanced degree mm-hmm. studying fairy tales. You knew this was something that you really loved Mm-hmm. as a reader as a child as an intellectual like there was something in there that you really wanted to mine yeah and it was when you finally honored that in your work that it really kind of took off yeah yeah but you skipped you kind of skipped <laughs> in that first book you skipped over it maybe you didn't quite have the confidence or the trust in yourself or something or the trust in your own instincts at that point to use it yeah i mean i think i hadn't you know i started off as a poet and so learning to even write a story, you know, there, there, were, there were some challenges that I had to move through. I, had, I read a lot of short fiction. I read a lot of novels. Um, you know, eventually I did go for an MFA, and that's where I finished that first book. And it helped a lot with finishing it. But I was really learning how to be a, a fiction writer when I was writing 13 Ways. I, I was learning how to move away from poetry into, into prose, and I knew I wanted to work with prose. So the idea of not only moving from poetry to prose, but moving to, uh, you know, surreal prose. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Yeah, I think that would have been maybe too much. And I always thought, you really love fairy tales. Like, one of these days, your love for, like, because in 13 Ways, what's explored and what I also love, maybe just as much, is um, really intimate monologues, like really intimate first person voices. I love writers who do that kind of very close first person. You know, I love Kazuo Shiguro. I love Jean Reese. I love David Mitchell's like first person, uh, present tense narratives. I just love those narratives that feel really visceral and real and, you know, um, and very forthcoming and vulnerable. And so 13 Ways is that, but I, didn't really know how to wed the fairy tale with that until Bunny. I I, I feel like that's what I kind of tried to do in that book. And I love the mix of the two because, like I said, I really do think it was the realization that fairy tales are more grounded in the real than we think. Okay, so... Do it, yeah. Fairy tales, surreality, and then... (laughs) the next like buzzword (laughs) that I feel like is important to address is gothic. Yes. Yes. And I was reading about your upbringing. You're from Canada. You were born in Montreal, correct? Right. Uh, An Egyptian father, French Canadian mother. Yes. And educated in an Anglophone school, despite being in a family that was predominantly French speaking. Yes. So I presume you speak French. French is infused throughout Rouge. I mean, the Mm -hmm. title is French, so it's in there. Mm -hmm. It's in there. Um, And I read that you dropped out of high school three times. Yes, I did. College once. College once, first year. And you were a goth teenager. (laughs) You moved to Toronto, I think, in high school or something, right? Yeah. No, you're right. You're right. It was um, the transition into grade eight, so it was close to high school. Yeah, middle, middle school, yeah. So what was going on to drop out? You seem <laughs> like a pretty straight, I mean, you seem pretty, I don't know. I, I don't talk to you and think, well, this is somebody who dropped out of school four times. Like yeah. you were struggling at that age. I was, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's always been really easy for me to feel stupid. And it's always been really hard for me to be in like a, a large group setting. Like I, I find that, I've always found that difficult. Um, so school, the whole system of school, it's just, it was hard for me, you know, it was really, really hard for me. And, um, and now you're a teacher. <laughs> and now I'm a teacher. And, and now, and I actually think to some degree, it helps me as a teacher um, to have had those experiences because I'm, 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 um, I'm really mindful of that. When I talk to my students, when I engage my students, when I try to include, uh, you know, all of my students and think about them all as individuals as opposed to just one big group, it just makes me more mindful, you know. And I am grateful. I mean, the reason I was able to finish high school is because, at the time in the '90s in Ontario, Canada, where I was, where I was, there was an alternative school that was free, and there were small classes, and I was able to transfer there and finish, 
So I was really, really grateful. I don't even know if that program still exists, but it helped me and I know it helped a lot of other kids um, who had similar issues with just being in a school setting, um, in a traditional school setting. And it was emotional and psychological more than it was like an attention issue. Like it was truly like feeling, you said you, you have an easy time feeling stupid. I kind of relate to that. That's why I think I do this show. I'm like, I feel, I tell myself in my like darker self-talk. Yeah. I'm like, look, I'm, I'm a mediocrity intellectually. (laughs) I don't know what's going on and I don't have any special gift. Yeah. I need to talk to smart people, <laughs> like yeah. help to like to help to like shore up my deficiencies or whatever, you know. And I think that there is some of that. And I also think like life humbles you, right? Yes. Maybe as you get as you get older, life humbles you, and then you yes. go, "Wow, I thought I had I thought I had a handle on this. Yeah, like, I really don't. Like yeah. if I was that wrong about this, then I've lost all trust and confidence in my assessment of everything else. <laughs> yes, yes. I think, yeah, no. I think that's so that's so true. And yeah, that was definitely true for me too as a kid. I was pretty insecure and not, not confident at all. And, you know, I did struggle with depression as a kid. So I feel like that was that was probably part of it. And, and you know, the goth subculture did really help me because in a lot of ways, yes, on the surface, goth is really very dark and we embrace melancholy, but it has such a wryness and such a self-mocking quality to it that it's it was a joy. You know, it was like there's a smile underneath all of this and that's comforting, you know. So so it helped me a lot and I did get so, through it, you know, I'm grateful. So let's, t- let's talk just a bit about the aesthetics of... Yeah goth teenager Mona Awad like (laughs) you know depressed jumping around from school to school not sure if if she even wants to continue school but then you find this goth aesthetic and this goth community and it resonates with you yeah so like all black Mm -hmm. listening to the cure and joy division and what else right I mean the whole thing oh the whole thing yeah I mean oh my gosh I mean we, we were so many bands that used to that used to come through Toronto Toronto used to be like a real they they had a real scene you know it was great and used to go to clubs and everything it was so much fun but yeah I mean it was joyous even though it was melancholy the embrace of melancholy was joyous Um, that was it learning to kind of give it a hug instead of resist it (laughs) exactly learning exactly I think that's what it was learning to find it beautiful rather than just pushing it away I'm saying that's bad, you know, it was, was joyous. And of course the music just felt like home, you know? Well, so. that's what I was going to say. I was just yeah. going to say like, wow, it's like if you're, if you're a depressed teenager, one good thing to do is to realize that there can be an excellent soundtrack for yes. your <laughs> shitty feelings. That's it is right. out there it waiting is for you. It is definitely out there, yes. And in addition, there's also like costuming. There's an entire aesthetic waiting for you. You know, that's the appeal of the goth subculture I feel like and it's nice that you point out that it is this wry kind of winking melancholy it's like self it's self-aware yes yes goth yes and I always fear it feel at home when I'm among the (laughs) self-aware you know like or at least people who try to be self-aware just the effort to be self-aware is such a great thing and um and I, I love I love that about about the goth community i it's it, it is aware of itself in a, in a fun way so. what were you reading as a teenager were there early books that you like latched onto as a depressed teen that made a big difference for you or that set you on this course you know it's so funny i mean i i did i was reading i took this um literature class in high school that got me really excited about all of these 20th century existential writers that you know I I'd never I never knew before so you know I did read of I mean I read Beckett I loved Beckett um when I was a teenager the plays I read I mean I read Sartre it's so funny but I did I loved Sartre and I read Hess of course thought Hess was like the best thing on the planet Damien was the best novel ever written you know uh, when I was 17 it was like my my touchstone and then, of course, Marguerite Duras. I loved her so much. I loved The Lover. I still remember where I was when I read that book. Where were you? I was in High Park in Toronto. 
not in school. <laughs> so, yeah. Taking a, taking a break, taking a break <laughs> taking to, to self-educate. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, and, and books at the time, they really, they were like friends, you know? It's just like this wonderful interaction with like just words on a page, but it was this incredible world that you get to occupy, right? That's just for you. So yeah, I think that's where I kind of really fell in love um, with reading and then really wanted to try writing. Uh, anyone in your family writerly? No, not at all. I mean, yeah, my mother was like a serious reader. Um, like she would read a, almost a book a night um, and she worked long hours, but she still read every single night. And I, I will never forget her throwing a copy of Jean Le Carré's, uh, it was the Russia House, uh, across, across the room and it hit the wall. And she was mad at it. She, the ending upset her. <laughs> this is the spy novel. Yeah, the, this is the, spy the novel. Camera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I remember being really like moved by that and thinking, wow, a book could have that, you know, could give give somebody that kind of reaction. That's amazing. Any structural damage to the house? <laughs> like, how fast did she throw it? <laughs> she really threw it. She really threw it. She, yeah. It was crazy. That's a discerning reader. Every writer should be so lucky to have a writer or a reader who gets that upset. I know. That's what I thought, too. I was like, wow, that's an experience. That's so cool. I want to do that one day. I want a book to make me do that. Yeah. I'm, well, I was just thinking, has anyone ever thrown my book across the room? No. I don't know. You know You'd know. you have hopefully. to take it as a compliment, for sure. <laughs> uh, of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. So I'm going to jump around a little bit biographically. And I, like, there's actually a method to my badness because I think that these two things are related. But for somebody who grew up in Montreal and then Toronto, goth teenager, skipping school, dropping <laughs> out, listening to Joy Division, yes. I'm imagining lots of eyeliner. Yes. You then get, I'm trying to like trace the, bio, the uh, biographical line, but you end up after, I guess, college. Mm -hmm. Where did you go to undergrad? Oh, in Toronto, I went to, to York. Um, okay. Well, York first, and then I ended up at Glendon, which is the same university, but they're French, French campus. Okay. So yeah. after that, I'm probably skipping a ton of stuff, but yeah. you end up uh, getting married and then moving to Salt Lake City. Yeah. Of all places. Like, yeah. it just seems <laughs> like, I feel like, I mean, Salt Lake City is beautiful. It's beautiful. It's a gorgeous place. I'm sure it's lovely to live there. Yeah. But it must have been strange for you. That's the feeling that I had. Like for this Canadian mm -hmm. woman with like goth tendencies to suddenly be in like Mormon yeah. Mecca must yeah. have been strange, right? Yeah, it was. It was. But it was good. You know, it was like a, it was new. It was a, a new experience. And I, I loved that. I loved paying attention to that, you know, and, and having the opportunity to pay attention to a new, a new place, you know, new people, a new landscape. I thought, I thought Utah was stunning. I mean, I think it's a gorgeous state. It um, really is. It's like beyond gorgeous, right? And Salt Lake is so incredible. I mean, you're surrounded by mountains. Everywhere you look, there's the mountains, you know, all these amazing canyons and it was it was gorgeous but yeah of course it was so surreal and strange but i did find communities there um well, there's a little you joined, a, you joined a you joined a belly dancing troupe, which did. i have to i have to ask you about yeah yeah i did i did it was great you know it was it was a way to kind of well i think to to find um community of course um which i did and it was also just interesting to me, you know, that there was, there really is a culture, a belly dancing culture in Salt Lake City. Um, like there are a lot of troops um, and there are a lot of performances. This is, and, this is surprising to me to learn And this. it was surprising to me. And I thought it was, yeah, I thought it was so interesting that as, again, as a writer, you know, my curiosity is what, what led me to just, you know, try it and get involved and kind of watch and, and have the experience. Well, but is this also a way to explore maybe your uh, Egyptian heritage? Like, was yeah. that a part of it? I think it was a little bit. Like, it, yeah, for sure. For sure it was. But it was it was kind of a weird way of doing it, you know, because there there aren't a lot of, you know, Egyptians in Salt Lake. There are some, actually. Um, but, uh, you know, of course there are. But, um, but the belly dance community, um, you know, is, I mean, it's mostly 
Utahns. So, you know, a lot of people who are just, some of them are even Mormon, you know. I was going to say, like, yeah. I, like, is it like, I'm always picked, why do I always picture Utah people, Mormons as being blonde, but there's yeah. a lot of blonde. No, there, yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, there are. There are a lot of blonde people. So, I'm um, picturing like, were there like blonde Mormon belly dancers? Yeah. Yeah, there are. There are. Yes. Yeah. Wow. No, it's really interesting. I mean, I, I found it, I found it a fascinating counterculture. I don't even know if it's counter. It was just a culture, like a, a really interesting art culture, like community in Salt Lake City that I didn't expect to find and that I found. Was there any, was there any menace? I mean, I feel like you're always going to locate the darkness. I feel like you have an antenna for this thing, but like yes. in Salt Lake City, and I should say too, in all, I don't mean to paint with too broad of a brush, but I, I just have to say that in all of my, and I've heard other people say this too, so there is some corroboration. In all of my interactions with Mormon people through yeah. the years, very nice people. Yes. Like sweet. Yes. I know, I mean, that's, I'm sure there are some <laughs> asshole Mormons out there, but like, you know, I don't know. Just like yeah. the rank and file Mormon people that I've interacted with, I'm like, wow, they're unusually just kind and cheerful, you yes. know, these people. They're memorable in that way. Yes. Uh, but of course, you know, if you read like Under the Banner of Heaven, you're like, <laughs> not everyone yes. <laughs> qualifies, no, know. you know. Yeah. So I'm curious to know, like, during your experiences living in Salt Lake City, if you located the gothic side of the town. Oh, I definitely did. I mean, I, you know, I, I yeah, I was I was part of that community, too. And I loved it. And it was great, a great community, actually. And the belly dance community and the goth community overlapped just a little bit, not entirely, obviously, but a little. So it was a very kind of easy, easy discovery to make. And that's so wait, so wait, just so I'm clear, there yeah. was a goth, a goth community in Salt Lake oh, yeah. City. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how do you how do you find these people? Is there just a club you go to or yeah. something? Or Yeah. And also shows, right? You go to shows, you know, bands move through Salt Lake City. And so when you go to the shows and they're smaller venues, yeah, you meet people and and you get to know each other. I mean, it's great. I mean, it's I, I did love that Salt Lake City was a small, a much smaller town than I'd ever lived in. So that was kind of fun about it and i did i did find the mormon community i mean i it was you know everybody was really nice so i didn't really have um any negative experiences socially with with the mormon community yeah but i do have to i mean i can imagine how a place like salt lake city wouldn't be a big <laughs> goth subculture but whatever goth subculture would exist in a place like that would be like pronounced and maybe close knit. Yes, very close knit, very very close knit, um, which was kind of nice. Um, yeah, you know, I liked it. Yeah. So okay, so here's part two. Okay. Rouge, is set in La Jolla. Yes. You've kind of touched on this a little bit, but we should we should talk about it some more. La Jolla aesthetically is like paradise. It's beautiful. Yes, it is. Like hills, you know. It's like for people who have not been. It's basically these dramatic hills that essentially drop off into the Pacific Ocean. Houses are up on the hills. It is stunningly beautiful. And yet, <laughs> in the world of Rouge, it is filled with, you know, Tom Cruise. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, with menace. You yeah. talked, I think you talked earlier about the ocean and how yeah. it is this beautiful, you know, magnificent natural wonder and a kind of mirror in its own right. You know, it reflects all this light, but yet what's down there? You know, there is something really grim and scary about the ocean that I think a lot of us feel. So just, I guess, just talk a little bit about landing on La Jolla as the, lo as the setting for Rouge. And as you said earlier, I believe you also, you wrote this book in La Jolla. You spend time in La Jolla regularly? Mm -hmm, that's right. Yeah, I, I have written there. I wrote um, a lot of All's Well there. I proofread Bunny there. So just in terms of creativity, it's it's been good to me. Yeah. Well, how did you wind up in La Jolla? Like, how did you settle on La Jolla? Um, well, I just had a really good first experience there. I lucked out with an Airbnb. It, it was right by the water. And so you know, when I had that experience and I was just like, wow, this is, this was really, really great for writing. I want to come back. And then I just booked a longer time and I just kind of, you know, did it off Airbnb and just got to know the, 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 the person who, who rents it to me. And then, you know, 
I actually started getting the idea for Rouge as I was finishing All's Well by virtue of being there and going for walks along the, the, the water. Um, and then I knew I wanted to come back and, you know, write, write that book, whatever it was. It was like starting to take form. And, uh, and then I did, and it was, I mean, it was one of the greatest creative experiences of my life to write Rouge in La Jolla where it is set, you know. <laughs> it was amazing. The ocean was right there. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. There's just, there's something very, there is something very existential about the ocean, just fundamentally looking at the ocean, you know? And I, I love the fact that it is a mirror. And I love that when the sun is setting, you know, everything starts to look red. Um, so, yeah, the, I mean, the, the, the Gothic is just inherent in existing on the, on the edge of the abyss, which you do when you are in La Jolla. Um, it's a beautiful yeah. abyss, but it's an abyss, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I've, spent, I've spent some time down there, spent some time in Orange County. Like, so beautiful. So beautiful. This yeah. coastal part of California and Southern California, dramatic cliffs into the ocean, yes. the whole thing. It's just yes. stunning. I feel like when darkness exists in a place like that, that is paradisical. Yes. It's extra dark. It's extra dark. I mean, that's why it's, you know, some of the creepiest, you know, scenes in horror take place during the day because it's just unfathomable, right? And so I, I love the idea of that contrast, you know, the, the bright sunshine, this kind of really innocent place that's in such denial about death. <laughs> you know, the whole aesthetic is to deny death, to have, you know, this really incredibly terririfying gothic spa <laughs> just tucked away you know but, I, mean, um, I listen if, if you haven't i can totally imagine it yeah i can totally imagine it and i feel like too socioeconomics are a big part of it like yeah la jolla is very very wealthy yes and the, like some people who live there are, just have oh I kind know. of en endless money yeah and yet that we we, we all know at least theoretically that endless money does not insulate you from unhappiness and in fact it can exacerbate it and make yes. it even worse i mean it's it's not a panacea and so it's like like endlessly wealthy people living in this place that is aesthetically perfect with all the money in the world to indulge their fantasies of not aging and to try to deny the reality of death and to look great at 80 you yes. know like whatever yes. it is and there's a real like when you that's when i feel like you really know misery i think my experiences there sometimes directly but more often as kind of an undercurrent is to feel like wow there's an intense undercurrent of human unhappiness here yeah because every need is sort of satisfied right like you have everything you could possibly want yeah it's not enough. No, no, because it's like a soul hunger. So it will never go away. <laughs> Put a bomb on it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's, here's a natural question. Having written this book and explored these themes so deeply, how do you satiate or satisfy the soul hunger that you just talked about? Like, how do you, what, what's the answer? Like, what is it that we want, that we really want, what would make us, like, here's the best definition of happiness that I've ever heard. I stole it and I just always use it whenever I need it. Okay. True happiness is to be free from wanting. Yeah, that makes sense. Right, I mean, it's yeah. like, okay, yeah, if I didn't want anything, that I think I would be but like, how do you get there? Because even if, like we've seen, even if like people are so rich, yeah, not enough, still want more. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, like, uh, have you learned anything about yourself in this respect to maybe be a little bit less soul hungry? Well, I mean, the happiest that I am, uh, that I can be, like the moments of great, great happiest, happiness that I've known have been, I'm not even kidding, like alone in the dark with, with a story when it's leading me somewhere new and exciting and it really feels alive and I'm really inside of it. 
I mean, that, that feels otherworldly and it's, it, it does feed my soul. But at the same time, <laughs> in order to have that experience, this is the paradox, I guess, I'm giving over my soul. Um, I'm, I'm putting it in the story. So there's less of me on the other side of it. So it's weird. I'm being fed, but I'm also giving it up. That makes sense to me. Yeah. And you're also, there's also like a forgetting of self. Yes. It's an act of generosity. You're in service to the story. When you say you're in the dark with a story, like, you know, as a like bona fide goth. <laughs> yeah. Does this mean you're actually in the dark? Like, do you shut off all the lights and draw the curtains when you write? Like, are you in a pitch black room with just the glow of your screen? Or <laughs> I don't like to write with like lots of light on. Um, it just makes me just too aware of the room and, and all of that. I mean, I, I don't like make it pitch black or anything, but you know, I'll, I'll just write in a room that maybe has like natural light coming through the, through the curtains or something, but maybe no, no other lights turned on. Um, just so that I can focus on the, on the, on just the worlds, right? And forget where I am a little bit. It's more just to turn off that critical part of the brain, you know, that is like, it has to be perfect. Work on, work on those sentences. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. like, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think what you're saying is something I've heard people say. So something I've heard myself say th through the years is the best part of writing is the doing it. Yes. Like the publishing is great. I think it's easy to kind of trick yourself into thinking like once this thing's published and it's in the bookstore, you know, it's going to be, that's what I'm after, but it's really not what you're after. What you're after are the kinds of moments that you just described where yes. you're alone with the work. It's just you and the story yes. and it's going well. Yes. That's it. Yes. That's peak, peak happiness. It's peak happiness. And it is both soul nourishing and soul sacrificing at the same time. So you have to feed yourself and destroy yourself. Yes, <laughs> for those of you listening and for those of you listening at home, feed yourself and destroy yourself. That's right. <laughs> that is the Mona Awad formula That's for how to be happy and moisturize. Very every day. important. Yes. Very important. It is important, I think, <laughs> to take care of your skin. I always ask people when I'm talking to them at the end of the conversation if they are working on something else you've I gotta say you've been very productive yes you're making lots of books you are industrious yes I, I yes it's true I am uh, working on a prequel to bunny right now which has a been prequel. very fun yes <laughs> yeah it's, it's been a lot of fun to work on so yeah it takes place the the first year of the MFA um, oh, okay. So it's still in the MFA. Yes, yes. It's when the, the bunnies are learning that they have mm -hmm. this power and it's about their first creation. That could be useful to the adaptation. You're like yeah. flushing out the world of it yeah, more. Yeah. No, absolutely. For sure. Yeah. Is that part of the motivation? Like was to like, well, this has been really resonant. Maybe I can explore this further or just this is just what grabbed you. No, it's really just what grabbed me. I mean, I it was again that thing of just I missed it so much and I kept going back to it in my head creatively and then the this story it just started to come to me so I just felt like and, and it did while I was working on Rouge so I, I knew that when I finished Rouge I would have to give it a try at least and see and then when I did I, I got really excited and I was like oh yeah okay I, I'm gonna try this for real and see what happens it's a franchise <laughs> this is your franchise yes. but, like I mean would do you think it's possible that you might write even more books in this world with these characters? Like, is this something you could see yourself really exploring across multiple titles? I can see one more after this one. Beyond that, I no, I don't think so. But uh, this one is very, like, it's very solidified in my head as it's as as it obviously connected to Bunny very deeply, but its own work separate from Bunny too. So, yeah. All right. So, last question then. Yeah. Is there a commonality in terms of how your books originate for you? Like, where do you, like, what does it, how do the, how do the germs of these things come to you? Like, and when do you start to realize that you've got something? Yeah. Usually it will start um, with a moment of really intense powerlessness. 
So if, if I think about it another way and I don't use the word powerless, <laughs> I, I might say a moment of obsession or enchantment with something in the world, you know, an interaction or, you know, something in media maybe. And that's what it was for Rouge. But usually it is, yeah, it's a feeling of real visceral powerlessness in the face of something that I can't, I can't fully grasp or give language to. And it usually does render me speechless, you know, in some way, because when I say powerless, I usually do also mean speechless. I have no words. So then telling the story is my way of trying to figure that moment out, you know, and it usually leads me to a place that feels very exciting in terms of a story. So for the prequel to Bunny, <laughs> was it the same feeling that you had that caused you to write Bunny or was it like a new feeling of powerlessness that gave you the idea for the prequel? Yeah, it was new. It was a new feeling of powerlessness. Imagining what the creation might feel as opposed to the, the creator. How the creation might experience being created and thrown into a world. So yeah, it's it's different because Bunny was about the anxiety of the of of the creator, right? This this uh, prequel explores both. Okay. Yeah. Well, you've got my interest, <laughs> and I uh, I congratulate you on Rouge and all the success that you've had. Thank uh, you. You know, early on in your career, you're really I feel like you're building something, and I admire how hardworking you clearly are to have created all these books in pretty rapid succession. So kudos to you. Thank you for the time. And I wish you all the best. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you, Brad. All right, folks, there we go. That was my conversation with Mona Awad. Her new novel is called Rouge. It is available now from Mary Sue Rucci Books, an imprint of Simon & Schuster. You can find Mona on the internet. Her website is monaawadauthor.com. She is also on Instagram. Once again, the new novel is called Rouge. Go get your copy immediately. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube, follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. You can sign up for my free newsletter at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. Join the Other People Patreon community over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you have a minute and you want to do me a quick favor, please give this show a rating wherever you listen. If there is an option to write a review, write a little review. It helps the show find new listeners. It helps it in the rankings. It helps it in the algorithm. If you want to get another people t-shirt, you can do that at the show's official website, otherppl.com. Just scroll down, look for the t-shirt. You can't miss it. And finally, a quick plug for my latest novel. It is almost a year and a half old. I think it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is available in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. So if you want to read my book or if you want me to read it to you, that is an option. Once again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Okay, so coming up on Wednesday, my guest will be Valhini Vara. Her debut novel, The Immortal King Rao, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and she now has a hotly anticipated new story collection coming out. It is called This Is Salvaged, and I'm very excited about this one, so stay tuned. <laughs>